thank you and praise you. Lord, it's our desire to glorify you. Lord, we pray that whatever is weighty and substantive, whatever brings honor and praise and majesty. Lord, if there's some way that we can acknowledge you in our life, thank you, praise you. Lord, it's our desire to do that. Lord, I thank you for these men and women that you've brought here this morning, Lord, and I pray that you administer to them and touch them. And most certainly, Lord, I pray for that man, that woman, Lord, whose heart is empty and who needs hope. Lord, I pray that you would fill them with hope. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him. We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Many of you are familiar with the song, The Old Rugged Cross. It was written by a man named George Bernard in 1913, and it was written over a series literally of years. I was talking with my mother and the older you get, you begin to contemplate your life and the journey that you've had and the end that will come. And my mom started talking about songs that she wanted sung at her funeral. And one that she mentioned was the old rugged cross. It's been recorded some 30 million records have been sold since it first came out. It's been sung by over 27 major recording artists. Many of you are familiar with it. It goes, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. So my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Oh, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God has left His glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. In that old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true. 
its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll share. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Jesus will exchange his ministry now for this cross. The personal and public ministry of Jesus will now become the private ministry of Jesus. And the words that you're about to hear are the words that he closes his ministry with. And it begins with the cross fulfilling Christ's cause, if you will. In verse 27, it says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. The trouble that Jesus expresses, make no mistake about it, it's intensive. The word is a very problematic and long word in the original language. It's tetar tei. It it means agitated. It means pressured. It means heavy. It means weighed down. It means strained, stressed, disturbed. And if you think that Jesus wants to die, then you're sadly mistaken. He's a young man. He is strong. And he is full of life. And by the way, if you're going to choose a way to die, most people who want to die don't take a brutal and painful death. And by the way, I've already reminded you, there is one particular form of death that you can't do by yourself. No one, I repeat, no one has ever committed suicide on a cross. It requires cooperation. And there are those people, there are atheists and agnostics and, and skeptics who, who suspect that the death of Jesus is some sort of catastrophe. They love the teachings of Jesus and they love to hear about the miracles of Jesus. But the moment you begin to talk about the cross, they immediately shut down. But remember, Jesus is not simply some mythical religious figure with a theological agenda to fulfill. This is not religious resignation. It isn't, well, you know, there's prophecies concerning a person who will die and I guess it's going to have to be me. No. This is personal allegiance to his heavenly father. And I want you to think carefully because Jesus will do what most of us are unwilling to do. He will obey his father. He will obey his father. Real courage isn't the absence of fear. It's the presence of fear. Real courage is not the absence of fear. It's the presence of of knowing that what you are about to do is the absolute right thing to do. Jesus has come to die. The united testimony of the New Testament is Jesus has come to die. Even as a child born in a manger, the angel appears and he says, This Jesus, has called him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin." The world is filled with questions about God and about Jesus. But few questions have a greater importance than the question, why did Jesus come to die? John Piper calls this the greatest question of the 21st century. To answer the question, Piper says, we have to go beyond the mere human causes. This is not a historical evaluation. Did the Jews kill Jesus? Did the Romans kill Jesus? In a very real sense, he writes, God allowed Jesus to die. Piper says in simple words, quote, who killed Jesus? God did. It's a staggering thought. Jesus was his son. But the whole Bible, the whole message of the Bible leads to this conclusion. In his book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die, he includes 
to absorb the wrath of God, to learn obedience and be perfected, to achieve his own resurrection from the dead, to show the wealth of God's love and grace for sinners, to cancel the legal demands of the law against us, to become a ransom for many, to provide forgiveness of sin, to provide the basis for our justification, to take away our condemnation, to abolish circumcision, rituals, rules as the basis for salvation to bring us to faith and to keep us faithful, to give us a clear conscience, to make us holy, blameless, and perfect, to obtain for us every good thing. And guess what? There are 30 more reasons to go. It makes no sense for Jesus to pray. Father, Save me from this hour. And by the way, the Gospel of John doesn't record the incident in the Garden of Gethsemane. But make no mistake about it. His heart is filled with the crushing demands that are about to be made on him. The cross, by the way, glorifies the Father's name. Look at the prayer, the very short prayer of Jesus in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. How simple the prayer. Jesus prays that the Father would glorify his own name. And by the way, once again, the verb glorify is in the Greek aorist tense. It, and you may not understand what that means, but what it's, it means is it speaks of an event, a single event. It's talking about a suspended moment in time and space. In other words, there is an event that is coming that will glorify God, and that single act, that specific event, is His crucifixion. It's the death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. This is the time that God has set aside for Jesus to die. And what would what would glorify God? You don't know how many atheists, skeptics, agnostics, and unbeliever they, they constantly ask the question, tell me how does the death of an innocent man glorify God? And the right answer, the most basic, the most simple answer to that question is that Jesus is doing exactly what God wants. He will honor the Lord. He will respect and obey God. And in that sense, the name of God would be glorified. Now, remember what that word glory means and its root. Glory means substance. It comes from a Greek word, doxa. We get the word doxology from it. And under the king eternal, immortal, invisible. Glory refers to weight and substance. We have a saying in our own culture, when someone is really not all that cool, we say, he's a lightweight. And when someone says something substantive, we say, ooh, that was heavy. Glory refers to the substance, the weight, the meaningfulness, the truth of the identity of God. In what way will it glorify God? Christ's obedience will glorify God. It will also be a visible demonstration, a, a historical demonstration of God's love. We've already talked about that. Remember, in the most famous verse in all of the New Testament where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish. Some people will see the cross and they will understand and they will bow down and they will surrender their lives to God. They will honor him. They will praise him for what he has done. And clearly God accepted and approved the Lord Jesus' prayer. The reason why we know that is because the approval is audible. The Heavenly Father speaks from heaven. His answer, I have both glorified it, that is his own name, and will glorify it again. By the way, the Bible certainly speaks of times when the Lord spoke audibly to his servants. 
the Lord spoke directly to Samuel. You'll remember in 1 Samuel chapter 3, you're all familiar with the story of how the young Samuel hears a voice in the night. Samuel. Remember, he talks to the high priest. Hey, I keep hearing somebody calling for me. Well, listen. And the next time he calls for you, say, your servant hears you. The Lord spoke directly to Elijah. You'll remember the, the night that the prophet ran away from Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter 19. There were certainly extraordinary times when God spoke out loud. And in the days of Jesus, many observant Jews, both Pharisees and Sadducees, believed that God spoke in what the ancient Hebrew tradition would call bat, kol. It is a Hebrew phrase which meant the daughter or the voice of the daughter. It, it, it wasn't really the voice of God. It was a voice that spoke the word of God. It was a voice that would whisper the law of the prophets. It, it was what the ancients called an echo, a voice from the past, a distant whisper, a, a faint remembrance of a vital communication that took place. It's like you, where you cry out to God and you hear a voice inside of you whispering. You hear the words of God coming to your heart. The voice of God was no distant whisper. It wasn't a faint communication from a time long ago. This was the audible voice of God. It was heard at the baptism of Jesus. You'll remember when he said, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. At the time of His transfiguration on the mount. And now, in the pressing, crushing, agitating circumstances where death's door is right around the corner, God's voice is heard again. Human flesh and blood sometimes needs reinforcement and aid. And we listen. We listen for the voice of God. Clearly, Jesus is praying according to God's will. When people pray according to God's will, God answers their prayers. Now, I want you to think about the prayer, and I want you to think about the answer. The prayer, Father, glorify yourself. The answer, I have. And I will. Now, I want you to think carefully. What does he mean? Glorify yourself. He means, in my obedience, in my demonstration of love, communicate. Have you ever prayed a prayer and wondered if God was listening? Lord, it's me. Now, I know there are a lot of Bills, Briggs, Georges, Johns. Uh, it's me, the one in Littleton. The one on Upham Court. Lord, are you there? Are you listening? And you wonder, does God hear your prayer? And clearly God the Father has heard and clearly God has accepted the prayer. Now I want you to go and do the math. This means that God accepts the prayer of Jesus. This means that God the Father accepts, listen carefully, the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. Have you ever prayed a prayer? Lord, I understand that you sacrificially died on the cross for me. Does it matter and can it apply to me? What do you think the right answer is? 
Of course it will. The moment Jesus accepts the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, we have confidence that we can be delivered from death. We can be forgiven our sins. We can be accepted by God. No wonder earlier, John, in John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. That's assurance. And that's important to you. Particularly if you've ever said, what does it matter? Why should I pray? Nobody's listening. But somebody is listening and responding. As a matter of fact, look in verse 29. It says, therefore, the people who stood by and and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Clearly, 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 they don't hear the words enunciated. I have glorified it and will glorify it. John the Apostle plainly, clearly tells us the voice is the voice of God that he has spoken and he can be understood. And Jesus basically says the voice hasn't come in order to encourage me, but rather to encourage you. The voice spoke in order to help the people who were around him understand and believe that he's the son of God. And now we go back to the theme of the gospel. Remember in chapter 20 where John writes and he says, I have written all of these things so that you would believe. And that in believing you would have life. Life everlasting. Thousands earlier had hailed Jesus as the physical ruler of a restored Jewish kingdom. Remember, it was only hours earlier when Jesus on a donkey made his way in the processional towards the holy city of Jerusalem. They're laying down palm branches. They're screaming at the top of their lungs, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They welcomed him as an earthly king, a prophetic messiah who's supposed to bring heaven on earth, an earthly utopia. But Jesus has come to die. He's come to die. Listen carefully. They want an earthly deliverer. They want someone who will bring mental, emotional, physical release from external bondages. But Jesus has much bigger fish to fry. He cares about you internally, invisibly, immortally. Jesus has come to die, and He's come to die for your sin. He has come to die for your sin. He is not simply concerned about the short journey that every human being must make. He is interested in an eternal provision that will last forever. And the dividing line is starting to be drawn. I want somebody for now. Jesus says, if you'll accept me for later, you can have me for now. And for later. And look at the cross. It judges God's enemies. The cross doesn't simply provide forgiveness and hope and reconciliation for you. It actually defeats God's enemies. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The world is not how it should be. Do you know what believers and unbelievers have in common? Whether you love the Lord, whether you are a Christian, whether you are an atheist, an agnostic, a skeptic, an inquirer, no matter who you happen to be, do you know what all people have in common? They all agree there's something not quite right with this world. There's something wrong. They may have different opinions of why it is wrong, but they know that something is wrong. The world was once pure and perfect, but no more. 
the Bible says that human beings rebelled and disobeyed God. Last year, the Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously, obviously he died last year, but when he was addressing a group of scholars at Harvard, he famously said, quote, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart, even the best of hearts, there remains a small corner of evil. And they booed him. Perhaps one of the greatest, if not the greatest, intellectual, compelling light, if you will, in the 20th century, reminding us that there's a real God and a real heaven and a real hell. Who's the ruler of this world? It's Satan. And Satan has the power to charge human beings with sin. Satan has the power to cause death. Satan has the power to cause human beings to be separated from God. Satan has the power to enslave human beings with sinful habits of sin and shame that preoccupy their lives. Our world is governed by an alien prince. Why is there sin? Why is there evil? The Bible teaches that God is not the author of sin and God is not the author of evil. God, listen carefully, never, God never tempts human beings to solicit them to do that which is wicked and wrong, according to James. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that in God there is no evil or wickedness. Then how do you explain evil and wickedness in a world? because there is a Satan. Evil and wickedness is not a joke. It's not a social construct. It's a substantive evil. The expression cast out is in what's known as the future passive tense. It's a again a word ek blethetei exo. It is a sure fact lying in the future, the word means to cast forth. It means to clean out. Satan in all of his power, in all of his rule, in all of his reign is cast out by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. The power of Satan, the rule of Satan, the reign of Satan over human lives is broken. Satan, according to this passage, is expelled. In the first service, I asked, I said, don't show me hands. But have any of you ever been expelled from school? Several people just raised their hand. I go, oh, yeah. I said, you didn't have to raise your hand. I said, you know, I got expelled one time in my life. I was in the eighth grade. I hate bullies. I hate them. There is something about a strong person taking advantage of a weak person that annoys me more than anything else. It disgusts me, and it brings out the worst in me. And oddly enough, way before I became a Christian, there was this young Mormon man who... who, uh, came to our church, or excuse me, who came to our school, and, and he was a very frail person, and he was the constant, he just was constantly persecuted, and he was constantly being criticized, and he was constantly being bullied by this one particular person. And he would push him, and shove him, and tease him, and push him, and shove him, and I just couldn't take it anymore. And so, at gym, it came time to wrestle. And he was on the bottom, and I was on the top, and the coach said, wrestle. And I took my forearm, and I went, 
right on the back of his neck. And I took his head and I smashed it into the mat and I began pounding him. And the coach was looking on in astonishment. And then the coach said, To the principal's office! And it was zero tolerance, no fighting, and I was expelled. And I went home, and my mom said, well, Gina, what, what happened? And I lied. I lied. I said, well, Mom, I did this for you. What do you mean? Mom, he called you names, and... He called me the son of a, and hey, you know what? I just couldn't let it go. I can let a lot of things go, Mom, but I am not, I repeat, not going to let that go. Now, you can imagine 40 years later, I'm still thinking about this. Because my mom went to the school, told all of my teachers that story, and they all allowed her to bring my homework home so I could stay current. I was expelled, but I was still there. And in a very real sense, Satan is expelled. But sometimes he will lie in order to get his way, in order to have influence and access. Paul the Apostle knew that. He, he writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, he set aside, speaking of Jesus, the legal brief against us, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In other words, God's law no longer had the power to address the circumstances. God's law says, tell the truth, and I'm a liar. God's law says, do what's right, and I do what's wrong. God's law says, love me, and I don't. I love myself. God's law condemns me. But guess what? Jesus Christ cancels your debt. And now Satan no longer has grounds to accuse you or accuse me. Accusation is one of the works of the devil. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. John the Apostle in the book of Revelation records these words. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of this Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers has been cast down. Paul writes, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies in Romans 8.23. Satan can accuse, but he can't make the charges stick. Satan says, God, Gino's a sinner. Yeah, you are so right. He's a liar. Uh-huh. He's wicked. Right on. That's exactly who he is. What are you going to do about it? I'm going to die on a cross for his lies, for his wickedness, for his sin, for his rebellion. I have paid the price. The Lord Jesus Christ turns to, the, to his heavenly Father and says, Dad, yes, Jesus. Remember my death on the cross? Yes, Jesus. Remember how it glorified you? Yes, Jesus. Remember how it satisfies all of the wicked requi the, the requirements necessary for Gino to have a right relationship with you? Yes, Jesus. Case dismissed. The charges never stick. It's like my father fondly used to say, no body, no crime. My father's a funny guy. You know, he'll watch like CSI, Miami, 
and they'll go, hey, you know what? It's going to be very difficult to trace the DNA in the intestines of that alligator. It's funny what you think about when you're trying to get away with stuff. And the reality is, there's nothing that escapes God's notice. And I want you to think carefully. And because you won't get away with anything, God has satisfied everything. No wonder Jesus is our righteousness. You can resist the devil. You can overcome temptation. Satan's promises are lies. When you place your faith in Jesus, the overpowering attraction of the world is broken. And now we understand what John means when he says, Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. And note what Jesus says, And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. The words, if I am lifted up, refers to the death of Jesus on the cross. So what is it about the cross that attracts human beings? The cross is the instrument that God will use to deliver men from their sin, from death, and from hell. Here is an instrument of death that exalts, but at the same time humiliates. Jesus says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. It is Jesus on the cross. The cross doesn't have magical powers. In the early centuries of the church, right before the Crusades, people would gather relics together as if bits and pieces of the wood themselves had magical properties or or powers. If you took all of the pieces of wood that claimed to be from the cross of Jesus, you could build two ships the size of the Titanic. Talk about multiplying loaves and fishes and wood. But here's the point. The symbol doesn't have the ability to bring you luck or or protect you from harm. People will come into here, into our own church, and they'll say, well, where's the cross? I want you to take a stopwatch, and I want you to time me and see if 60 seconds has gone by any time in this message that I haven't mentioned the cross. People want the symbol of the cross, but they don't want the substance of the cross. They want a religious article that they can look at, but they don't want the implications of all that the cross brings. The Bible says, it's Jesus on the cross that saves you. If Jesus, if I, if I am lifted up, If I am lifted up, I'm going to draw all people. Well, what if he's not lifted up? Well, guess what? Then you remain under the curse of Adam. You remain under the obligations of the law. You remain in the earnest expectation of judgment. And that's why it says in verse 33, this he said signifying by what death he would die. He's not going to be hung. He's not going to be stoned. He's not going to be murdered. He's not going to die of old age. He's going to die on a cross. That's why Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's where the transfer takes place. No wonder Paul would write, I purpose to know nothing among you except for Christ and Him crucified. Remember, Paul says, I won't boast in anything except for the cross of Calvary. The Old Testament writer says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. And the humble will hear and be glad. I want to ask you a question. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Good news or bad news? 
That's good news. But guess what? It is bad news also. In order for it to be seen as good news, it has to be seen as true and good and believable. So why don't people see the cross as good, true, and believable? For your atheist friend, for your agnostic friend, for your skeptic friend, for the friend who reads the Bible and looks at the Bible and sees the cross and embraces the wonderful teachings of Jesus and even the amazing story that is Jesus, but they can't bring themselves to believe that Jesus really died on the cross and rose from the dead. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satanic interference coupled with human sinful nature creates a mechanism where unbelievers remain immune. It's like they're inoculated. It's like they've taken a shot, a gospel shot. And they've heard the story over and over and over again, over and over and over again. But look what it says. The cross divides the believer from the unbeliever. Look at verse 34. The people answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Do you understand what's happening? The people are answering Jesus. We want an earthly Messiah. We want a king for the here and now. If you are the Messiah, and if you are telling us you are supposed to die, then how do you explain everything in the Bible that says Messiah's kingdom will last forever? Now, here's part of what you have to understand. The people understand completely that Jesus is speaking about his death. And that's what confuses them. You're sitting here telling us that you have to die. The Messiah is supposed to live forever. Psalm 89:36. His seed shall endure forever. His throne is the sun before me. Isaiah 9:7. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, in order to establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Daniel 7:14. Then to him who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, then all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It won't pass away. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. Explain this. By the way, what is the explanation? How can both be true? How can both be truly true? It's because the Messiah will die. And the Messiah will come back to life. Make no mistake about it. He came in humility as a baby to save you from your sin. But he will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The people are saying, we made a mistake. Is the son of man someone else? We want an invincible leader who will be at the head of an irresistible army with troops from heaven so we can crush the bullies that are Rome and wipe them out. Listen carefully. We don't want a Savior who says he's going to die. And look at what's happening. In verse 35, remember what they've asked. Who's the Son of Man? Here's what you expect to read in verse 35. I'm the Son of Man and I'm going to come back twice. Don't, Don't you think that's what you would say? Look, Jesus, let's just make this clear. But look what Jesus does say. Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Guess who's walking in darkness? 
They are. Guess who's rejecting the light? They are. Understand what's happening. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus has already claimed to be the light and continues to claim to be the light. The light is going to be extinguished. People walk in the light while they have the light. People must believe in the light. Jesus is appealing to them to believe in Him before the cross, before the sun sets, before He's taken from them. And in verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. If people believe in the light, he's saying something significant, something eternal, something incredible is going to happen. If they believe, they will become, look, read it for yourself, sons of light. The verb believe is in a state of continuous action. It says, believe what I'm saying, believe it now and believe it later. Believe it today. Believe it tomorrow. But the word become is once for all. It's the Greek genesthe. It's a personal experience that happens all at once. That you may become all at once by being born again sons of the light. The person who believes in Jesus. The person who sees Jesus as the light of the world believes and continues to believe and their heart turns towards Jesus in recognition and they see fully and finally and they understand the meaning of the cross. They become a child of God and they walk in the light. But you know what? We live in a world where people trivialize even that. Oh, you went to church today, huh? Heard the preacher? I guess you're... Oh, you see in the light... Hallelujah. Yeah, your family and friends will make fun of you. Oh, you've seen the light. Yeah? Look what it says. Those things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. You know what? With that sentence, the public ministry of Jesus is over. These are the last words. He departed. He hid from them. John MacArthur writes, The sun of opportunity has set. God's patience was at an end. And Jesus' solemn warnings, I go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. And where I am going, you can't come. John 8, 21. Despite massive, incontrovertible evidence... The Jewish people concluded Jesus is not the Messiah and he deserves to be executed as an imposter. Robert Short, in his Gospel According to Peanuts, quotes the very famous theologian Charles Schultz. Lucy says to Charlie Brown, you know the whole trouble with you, Charlie Brown? No, I don't know, and I don't want to know. Leave me alone. The whole trouble with you is you won't listen to what the whole trouble with you is. Paul Hovey said, sin has four characteristics. Self-sufficiency instead of faith. Self-will instead of submission. Self-seeking instead of benevolence. Self-righteousness instead of humility. I don't need you, Jesus. I don't want you, Jesus. I want what I want, Jesus. And I'm fine just the way that I am. As the new... United States Senator from Minnesota used to so fondly say, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. You know, the story is told of a meeting among Satan and his angels, and Satan was concerned that business was starting to slow down. 
And more and more people were embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior. And you'll remember that hell was created for the devil and his angels. But the prince of this world wants to deceive as many as possible. And so suggestions started to go around the table. And one demon jumped up and with, a, with acid breath, he said, I'll go back to the earth. And I'll convince people that there is no heaven. And Satan went, loser. It's not going to work. God's placed eternity in their hearts. You can say that there is no heaven. You can say that this is all that there is. But there's something inside of them that knows that there's something more. And then another demon said, I'll convince them that there is no hell. And Satan said, no, that might fool some. But it won't fool all. And then a wise old liar and deceiver deceiver rose up and said, let me go back. I will fill hell. I'll just convince them that there is no hurry. No heaven. No hell. No hurry. No worry. I mean, I can always come on Wednesday night. I can always come back next Sunday. Each and every Sunday, Gino's there telling me, get right with God. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Savior. Jesus made it abundantly clear that no one comes to Him unless they're drawn by the Spirit of God. It isn't my invitation that changes your heart. It's the invitation that is extended by the Holy Spirit to your heart. When the voice whispers inside your heart, something's not quite right. Something is wrong. You've never fully and finally accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. You need to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person who, like the old song says, I pray... There is a heaven and I I hope there's a heaven and I pray there ain't no hell. Lord, I pray that for that person who said, I'm fine just the way that I am. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them that they're not fine. That there's something permanently wrong. And that that permanently wrong situation can only be remedied by Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would look at the cross and they would see it and they would finally understand what it means. That they can experience life and hope, forgiveness, and joy, peace, and love. Lord, I pray that they would submit themselves to you and, and be fully and finally and forever saved. And if that's you, just slip up your hand and I'll pray for you. And I'll invite you to come up in just a second. It's not too late. You know you need to have a right relationship with God, and you don't. Heavenly Father, I pray that you, Lord, would be glorified. That, Lord, you will fully and finally manifest your love your holiness your righteousness and that Lord you will be all in all in Jesus name Amen let's stand